just bring peace and comfort, we pray. Again, O Lord, we lay these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, as, a, as a youth worker in Balnehinch, I used to go into local secondary schools to take their assemblies. It was frightening. Uh, standing up in front of sort of four to five hundred pupils and teachers, most of whom didn't want to be there, first thing in the morning, was really scary. And yet, it, it was such an exciting Opportunity. One of, one of my favorite illustrations involved a tin of pedigree chum. And this is what I used to do. Ashley <laughs> you see although it uh, looks like I'm eating dog food I'm not you're assuming I am because that's what it says on the label based on outward appearances truth is it's just a tin of mince meat I swap the labels and then once I had done that and grabbed their attention, and I can assure you in a school, first thing in the morning, whenever you did that, it grabbed their attention. I would then go on to talk about the importance of not making judgments based on externals. Don't judge a book by its cover. And although we live in a society and in a culture that is preoccupied with how we look, it's what's on the inside. It really matters. And then I would just walk off. <laughs> Sometimes. And you can see where I probably went with that and where I might go with it this evening. We'll come back to it later. Tonight, that was disgusting, even though it was men's meat. <laughs> tonight, uh, tonight, we are starting this brand new series, Walking the Walk. And I must admit, I'm really looking forward to it because for the next, and I'm, I'm not actually sure how many weeks we're going to spend working our way through the life of David, but for the next number of months at least, we're going to reread the story of David, one of the most prominent characters in the entire Bible. In fact, more has been written about him than any other Bible character. Abraham has 14 chapters dedicated to his life. So does Joseph. Jacob has 11. Elijah has 10. David has 66 chapters. And that doesn't include almost 60 references to his life in the New Testament. And so starting at 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is page 287 in the Pew Bibles, we're going to retrace David's story. Now I know that, that Sunday nights 
for many people involve watching the latest episode of certain dramas. Homeland or Downton are the current ones and everybody's divided as to which is best. Well, I kind of hope that this particular drama will also uh, capture people's attention here on Sunday nights for the next number of months. But there are two reasons why I'm looking forward to this, to this series. To start with, and many of you know this about me, but to start with, I love story. I really love story. And this is one of the greatest stories ever told. Because it's got everything in it. There are three subjects you're generally advised to avoid in certain company. Three subjects you shouldn't talk about with very many people or else it gets you into trouble. Does anyone know what the three subjects are that you shouldn't really talk about in certain company? Go on, somebody be brave. Politics is one. Religion's the other. And sex is the other. Take those out of David's story. Not much remains. And so we're probably going to talk about those subjects on a relatively regular basis. And so I know that probably means that some people are thinking, right, that's me not coming back to Windsor Baptist for the next number of months. But the main reason that I am excited about this new series is because it is so full of relevance for today. It is so packed with truths that are important for us to discover and learn and apply to our lives in in the 21st century. Not least because this is a story that does address those three subjects. But as we start kind of re-reading it, let let me explain this title because somebody actually said to me, hang on a wee minute, is there not a mistake there? Is one of the letters not wrong? Should it not be walking the talk? Is is that not the more familiar phrase that people are accustomed to? Well, no, it's actually right. It's walking the walk. And it's a title that actually comes from 1 Kings chapter 4, where God speaks these words into Solomon's life, who is David's son. He says this, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully, with integrity of heart and uprightness, as your father David did. What an amazing reference from Almighty God. An incredible description of someone's life from divine lips. What if each of us were walking the walk of David? That we were walking before God faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness. Is that how we walk? How is David infamously described and remembered in the New Testament in Acts 13? I know. How is he famously remembered? Thank you, Mary. David is a man after God's own heart. And so as we revisit his life, I hope and pray we'll discover his secret. What was it about David that led him to be remembered as that kind of man? So here goes the story. 
Let me read verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. Let me just turn it up here. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. You see, the Israelites desperately wanted a king. In fact, they they demanded it of God. We want a king just like everyone else, just like all the other surrounding nations. And so they got one. Saul was the first king in Israel. We read that he was a handsome man. We actually read that he was a head taller than anyone else. But he was rejected by God. Why? There's a whole bunch of reasons. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that was Saul's story. He was a man who got ahead of himself. He was a man who thought he was someone. And he ended up doing a whole bunch of really stupid and really wrong things for which he never fully repented. And so his time was up. And God said, you know, I've chosen someone else to take his place. He's been rejected. And Samuel was gutted. He had anointed Saul. He had expected so much of this first king, but even he recognized, and you read this in the chapter before, even Samuel recognized that Saul rejected the word of the Lord. And anyone who does that is on thin ice. Anyone who rejects God's word. And the someone else that God had chosen to succeed Saul was, was the son of Jesse. And Samuel is commissioned to go and to anoint the very specific son that God will identify in time. Samuel, have a look at verse 2. Samuel is nervous about going. And the reason he's nervous about going is because he knows that if Saul gets wind of this, if Saul hears that he's heading to anoint someone else as king, then Samuel will be history. And so God gives Samuel a cover story. Take a heifer with you. Say you've come to make a sacrifice to God. Invite Jesse to the occasion and then I'll take it from there. That was what God said. I'll show you what to do next. And all of this points to something known as the providence of God. You see, God knows what he is doing. And he does it. It doesn't always make sense from a human perspective. In fact, there are times when it's totally incomprehensible what God is doing. But God's ways are not our ways. And he will and he does intervene in his world and the affairs of this world in order to accomplish his purposes and bring about his objectives. God is in control. Nothing happens by chance or by fate. The story that we're starting tonight makes that abundantly clear. 
but I also recognize there's more than an element of mystery to this particular attribute of God. Verse 4 says, Samuel did what the Lord said. Yes, in verse 2 there was a slight hesitation, but then he obeys. And doing what the Lord says is is one of the key virtues that you discover in this story. Obedience always has been and always will be a critical expression of Christian faith. Doing what God says. And there are times in our own lives, and and we we question it, don't we? It's the same way Samuel did here. Is, Is this really what you want me to do? I'm nervous. But then he, he did it. And for many of us, we do that. We question God. I know you've said, love my enemy. Am I going to do that? I know you've said, forgive those who sin against us. Can I question that? But I know I need to do it. Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. And he sets up the sacrifice and he invites Jesse and his sons to attend. And when when Samuel sees the first son, Eliab, he's convinced right up front. He's convinced this is the one. He says, surely the Lord's anointed one stands here before the Lord. Purely based on Luke's outward appearance, his physique, his stature, all the surface stuff, Samuel's impressed with this older guy. God isn't. And quickly he says to Samuel, I've rejected him. And then comes one of those verses and one of those statements and one of those core revelations regarding God and what's important to God and what really matters in life. A verse we're all familiar with. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And back to the tin of dog food. We're so quick to make assumptions and judgments based on what we see. Based on the externals, the labels. And we forget to check and we forget to realize that, listen, it's what's on the inside that really counts. Most of us are, are, are prone and we're honest about this most of us are prone to judge others by how they look and most of us are prone to think or fear that we are also being judged that way by the people around us it's just the way it is isn't it and given what you read here in first samuel 16 verse 7 is, is it not just always the way it's been people always judge one another on the externals But it seems even more intense and exaggerated in our sort of media-insaturated, Instagram-influenced culture and context where everything from cosmetics to cars, from fitness regimes to fashion accessories are sold on the basis that human beings are judged by their outward appearance. Image is everything. And nothing is sold still less advertised on the basis that the Lord judges the heart. And yet of all the sentences in the entire story of David, this one is possibly the most arresting and the most necessary. The thing is that none of us can see into each other's hearts this evening. 
None of us. But God can. And it seems that God does. And so as he looks and as he investigates and as he excavates, what what does he find? As God searches much deeper within through the way things appear as we sometimes sing, what, what does he uncover? What does he discover? Because the real worth of a human being is not determined by appearance or more general attributes such as achievements or abilities or status or wealth. The real worth of a human being is the state of the heart. God is looking for pure, guarded hearts, humble, contrite hearts, teachable, repentant hearts, compassionate, servant hearts. And it's the state of in here that dictates how we speak, because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's the state of my heart that influences my integrity. It's the state of your heart and mine that determines our steadfastness and our loyalty. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. I suppose the question I'm really just going to ask this evening is, is how is your heart tonight? How is your heart? And back to the story, Jesse is is probably a little surprised and he must have been disappointed that his eldest son has been rejected, but, but he's got another six that he's going to introduce to Samuel. But the reaction is the same every single time another son gets brought before him. Sorry, the Lord's rejected this one. The Lord's rejected this one. The Lord's rejected this one. And Samuel is now confused. And he's wondering, well, what has gone wrong? God sent me here with the explicit purpose of anointing the son of Jesse that God reveals. And so Samuel says, is this it? Have you any more sons? Seven is the perfect number in that culture, and so the chances are there aren't any more. And yet it turns out there is an eighth. The youngest wasn't even invited to the sacrifice. He was left to look after the sheep. And I suppose in a culture that that revered age, the youngest was always going to draw the short straw. But Samuel is, is wise enough not to overlook anyone given what God has told him. So though everybody else has overlooked the youngest and left him behind, he wasn't even worth bringing as a possibility. Samuel says, well, listen, send for him. And do you know what? We're not going to eat. We're not going to do anything until he gets here. See, Samuel realizes that, that God operates on a different level. Samuel knows that God chooses the most unlikely of people, the most unlikely people to be part of his story and his purpose and his plans. After all, this is someone who himself was only a kid whenever God came and spoke to him in a day, which we read, when the word of the Lord was rare. And yet God's word spoke to Samuel at night as he was in the temple. 
Samuel had discovered that God is not a slave to human convention. And this tendency for God to choose the most unlikely and overlooked is one of those constant themes of scripture. It happens time and time again. Why would God choose Mary and Joseph to be the parents of God in the flesh? Just a carpenter from Nazareth. So the eighth son turns up. But there's a bit of a surprise here. Because I reckon that most readers are waiting to discover that this eighth son isn't much of a looker. That he's a bit out of shape. A bit ropey looking because you know, we've heard that God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God's more interested in the heart. So surely the way it's going to work is that this guy doesn't look like much. And yet then you read verse 12. He's glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. So this boy looked good. But far more importantly, his heart was clearly good. And if nothing else, and Lewis hardly needs to be said, what this does confirm is that external appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies. You see, from God's perspective, that's not the critical issue. But the condition, the state, and the shape of your heart and mine absolutely is. So we live in this culture that encourages people to invest so much time and so much energy, so much money into getting and maintaining a certain look. And it's not that looking well, whatever that means, or paying attention to your health and your physical well-being are wrong. It's not, that's not what this is about. The core issue is the need to get, maintain, nurture, and guard the right heart as opposed to the right look. And whenever Samuel sees the eighth son, God says, this is the one. This is the one. And so in the presence of all his brothers, which must have been interesting, I would have loved to have known what they were thinking. They all had been rejected by God. The youngest they're now discovering is the one. And in the presence of them, Samuel anoints him. And at that point it says, and from this day forward, the spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon David, who is now named for the very first time, David. David is chosen and he's equipped And now the adventure begins. Or actually not quite. Because David doesn't actually become king for 17 chapters. His anointing was public, but it wasn't publicized. It's going to be years before David's destiny is developed. And so for now, there's what? For now, there's what? There's just a wait. Just a wait. Which is often the way it is with the will and purposes of God. And I suppose that's a bit of a test and revelation regarding the condition of your heart. Are you willing to wait? Am I willing to wait for God's timing? Waiting isn't easy. Most of us like or want things to happen now according to our timetable. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way God usually works you take a few other examples, Abraham had to wait a long time before his destiny was developed. 
In fact, he thought it was never going to happen given his age and his wife's age. Moses had to spend 40 years in the middle of nowhere working for his father-in-law before his destiny began to develop. And even Jesus, the chosen one, had to wait some 30 years and then a little longer before his destiny was developed. Waiting. Chosen. Equipped. Waiting. God works out his purposes in our lives and in his world in his time. That's providence. For now, we may have to simply wait. And so David, you presume, goes back home. That, that seems to be the implication. He, he gets on with life. The ordinary stuff of life, the routines. But all we can say with confidence is he goes back and gets on with the ordinary stuff of life and the routines with the right heart. Because God has identified that in him. And surely for lots of us, that's, that's the challenge. Just to do life with the right heart. And allow God to work out his purposes in our lives in his time. And then there's a pause in the story and, and a new scene opens at verse 14. And this is one of these verses that should shock us. It's one of those verses that upsets many Christian readers, and rightly so. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Paul, Saul. That, that's hard enough. And then it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. How do you explain that? How do you explain that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. The NIV footnote suggests that what this could mean is a harmful spirit. Either way, this is uncomfortable. And it doesn't sit well with most of us, self-included. But rather than try to find a way around it, or even try to explain it in a way that makes perfect sense or even any sense. I'm going to choose to let the discomfort remain. And humbly accept that as God works out his eternal purposes in his way, that he does what he does. And he knows what he's doing. And God does not have to explain everything. That is providence. And Saul's servants, they, they diagnose the problem. They, they discern what's wrong with the king. And they prescribe a remedy. And what's the remedy they prescribe? It's music therapy. It's not a new thing. It's been around for centuries. Music has always had the potential to soothe a troubled soul. And Saul accepts their prescription and he instructs his servants to go and find him a competent musician. Find me someone who plays well. 
And one of his servants suggests a certain person. God is in control. And he says, you know, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and he's a warrior. Which kind of challenges our idea of, of David in the next chapter as this kind of little weak person going up against a giant. David was a brave man and a warrior. That was what he was known for. He speaks well. He's a fine looking man. But here's the bit. And the Lord is with him. And so Saul sends for David and loves him. Likes him a lot. And every time that David plays, Saul feels better. And the evil, harmful spirit from God leaves him. I know that relations between Saul and his music therapist are going to turn sour. And more about that in subsequent weeks. But as episode one in this drama draws to a close, we've already got a bit of an insight into David's life and character. Let me just restate too. His heart was right. God could see that. And the Lord was with him. Other people could see that. See, what's on the inside really does matter. And so again, how is your heart? What are you and I more concerned about? Outward appearance or inward condition? And what is your reputation? People could see and know that David was a man of God. When people talk about me, when people talk about you, what what do they say? Is our Christian faith and our relationship with God prominent in their description of us? Already 